When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and today I'm joined by Dave Prentice and Gav Buckland, who's due the fat over all the major talking points at Goodison Park. And this may be the close season, but of course, the Royal Blue Pod continues. And with Gav, uh, with myself, Gav, and Preno today, we will get stuck into looking at, as best as we can assess it and analyse, um, the scale of the task facing Carlo Ancelotti. He's obviously had six, seven months in charge, but he will be going into his first full campaign as Everton manager come September the 12th. Um, and of course, it is, as ever at Everton, an important summer. Um, but Gav, I'll start with you. It's an important summer, but the, the understanding, of course, is that this there won't be wholesale changes to the squad. This won't be a transfer window where six, seven, eight players are brought in and Carlo can revamp and change the squad in that regard. And, and something I think you're, you were keen to talk about was that we're going to have to see Carlo and his coaching ability come to the fall yeah. next season because he will be using quite a lot of the same players. Yeah, exactly. I know uh, there's been a lot of talk, quite rightly so, you know, I was going to say this summer, <laughs> two weeks or whatever since the end of the season, around, you know, rebuilding and, um, you know, it's, it's it's not Carlo's team that he's got, he needs to have his own team, all that type of stuff. But as we know, no, because of financial constraints of the club and our expenditure in the last three or four years, bringing in another seven or eight players isn't, isn't going to happen. Um, I, I mean, to be honest with you, I wouldn't want that anyway. I don't, don't think you'd do with another summer of seven or eight transfers. Um, Carlo spoke of evolution, didn't he? I think a few weeks ago. Um, maybe you could infer from that, and there's been mentioned elsewhere two or three three players coming inside, which leaves you. I mean, with if you've got a squad of 20, 25, say 20, 25 players, leaves you with still probably 17, 18 players who we had at the end of last year that played in the Premier League under you know, of those nine games or were injured still at the club. Now, we've shown, we've shown at the end of the last season that, and Carlo mentioned himself, that the attitude of the players in some games wasn't right. You know, motivation, you know. I think he spoke after the Sheffield United game about how he got it right against Sheffield United. Good to see the players motivated and, you know, the morale, morale was good compared to Wolves. And then we slumped back again four or five days later against Bournemouth. To, to the same pattern that was shown against Wolves and their four games in the in that mini nine game spell. And to me, that that sort of sums up Carlo's challenge next year. It's not integrating new players, it's getting the best every game out of players who who effectively let him down, didn't they, at the end of last season with their, with their attitude, collective attitude and individually so as well in some cases. And that's his challenge. And as you say there, Phil, it's going to take all his experience to do that, that he's garnered over, you know, 20 years in the dugout. 
And that, that to me is when we talk about moving forward, that's the thing that's going to move us forward, not bringing three new players in that people all seem to think. Preno, he was, um, Carlo was asked, um, certainly since since the restart, I'm, I'm not sure you get on the exact day, I'd have to look back. Um, he was asked in a press conference whether he felt that the Everton job was the uh, most difficult or the most challenging job of his managerial career. And, and typical of Carlo, he he sort of raised the eyebrow and, and but didn't really give a particularly committal answer. He, he sort of he straight batted it. But I think the inference in, he, in his in his mannerisms and, and how his uh, his reaction was that it probably was. Um, I mean, do you feel that you know certainly? In, you know, having looked at, at Carlo's career and, and seen where he's been and etc., do, do you see a bigger challenge previously for him? I do, definitely, yeah. Uh, a very different challenge uh, to one he's had throughout the last, certainly the last 20 years of his managerial career um, because he does have to effectively overhaul um, a squad that isn't quite fit for purpose. And I take Gav's point there that, you know, sort of motivation and attitude is as much an issue as the actual, you know, sort of parts of the squad, the individuals that he has to re, uh, replace. And it's not something that he's done recently. Uh, the jobs that he's gone into have been huge football clubs who absolutely demand, you know, the elite of success. You know, they demand Champions Leagues. Uh, the, you know, the, the Premier League or their league title is almost a given, the clubs that he's been at. Uh, you can't just win that. You've got to bring a European trophy as well. Uh, so it's a very different type of pressure. Um, the pressure he has at Everton is, is trying to basically rebuild uh, a football club to where Everton used to be a long, long time ago. Um, we had that spell on today with Moyes where we were knocking on the door uh, for you know best part of six or seven years, but you know the glass ceiling it was described as couldn't quite break through. And the problem then was that we didn't have the finance to be able to bring in the necessary quality. Uh, that would you know get us over that line. David Moyes didn't have an issue with the motivation and attitude of the players that he had in the squad. That was what he was very good at, largely because he spent an awful lot of time actually analysing the attitude and the background of these players before he decided to commit to bringing them into his football club. He wanted to know they were the right type as well as being the right quality. Uh, I think Carlo has discovered to his uh, disappointment and his frustration that a lot of the players he has inherited don't have good attitudes, don't have the right attitudes uh, to be able to perform week in and week out. Uh, as Gav says, they can lift it for one game. Uh, I mean, that Leicester City match was won, I think, uh, almost entirely on the back of um, Carlo's tactical acumen. The changes he made during the game, his game management, it was excellent though. And, and Leicester were a better quality side than us on the day, uh, but we ended up winning the, uh, winning the game. And we're going to have to see a lot more of that uh, next season. Because as he said, evolution is the way forward, not re revolution. And I get that. Yeah, you know, you can't make wholesale changes every single summer and expect that something to click just like that. You've got to bring in two or three players that will make a significant difference, build on it and build on it. So I hate to say it, but I think we may need to be patient. I think we may need to, you know, sort of just give Carlo time, you know, sort of to build things the way he wants to build things. And, you know, you might not suddenly see Everton absolutely, you know, sort of charging through to the you know, European places again next season. We might have to accept gradual evolution. And as we know, you know, football fans aren't blessed with patience. You know, you want to see a quick fix straight away. It's a very important uh, close season, as you've said. There's a very short period of time that Carlo has to make necessary changes. 
we're just going to have to trust in him and be patient. I think patience is the is the big quality a lot of Blues fans are going to have to have for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Gav, kind of really, really um, stops on a really interesting point there because patience, and I don't think, given that the club have, have, have gone 25 years without silverware, you know, a, a manager or anybody at the football club in, in an official capacity asking for patience wouldn't happen because they know, you know, how can you ask... How can you ask a supporter base that have waited so long for, for success to be patient? But but Preno, Preno is right, though, isn't he? That as much as it may be frustrating for us all to have to wait and, and bide our time and allow the process to take its due course and, and, and for Carlo to use this contract that he has of four and a half years to, to build something, um, you know, it's, it's difficult, I guess, for, for many supporters to perhaps... To perhaps accept that because there's been false dawns, there's been changes, and it and it's just and it's still not happened. Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is where Carlo's reputation and experience as a manager and the gravitas that he's got in the game helps, doesn't it? Seeing with Everton supporters, you know, and Carlo we trust, and you know all that type mm. of stuff, and you know, um, I think that gives him a little bit more breathing space. I think than if somebody had come in. Um, I'd, I'd say even say silver, say somebody like that, you know, at, at that level. Not silver as a specific person, but you know that type of appointment. Uh, I think he his his experience and, and uh, know how and where with all gives him be the space with supporters. So as long as there is progress next season, I think people will be patient, knowing that Carlos' ability and man as a manager hopefully will take us over that three or four year period to where we want to be. Um, what what will try people's patience is if we start next season in the first nine games, we show the same sort of lackadaisical attitude in three or four matches yeah. as what we did at the end of, la- the end of last season. That's when pa- mm. patience will be uh, tried, I think. If we go into the next nine games, start next season, and you can see some of the stuff I've talked about at the start of pod around, players' attitudes being collectively better, more commitments, people looking as though they know what they're doing and wanting to know what they, they need to do, then I think uh, if we get that, then you know people will, will stick with us. You know, Yeah, I think what's going to be really interesting uh, next season is the system that Carlo starts with. Because I think certainly for the you know period that we've had post-lockdown, he's been experimenting. Uh, he's been looking at the players that he's got um, and seeing whether they can fit into this four-four-two that was, you know, the avowed, you know, formation that he wanted to use. And it'd be interesting to see whether a the players that he brings in, you know, so during the other summer, uh, can fit into that, or whether he's going to continue to to tweak things a little bit because you know he changed it at Sheffield United. Uh, you know, he didn't play four-four-two that night, and it looked great. You know, so we actually probably one of our better performances. Um, went back to a more traditional, you know, sort of Carlo system against Bournemouth, and oh, it was it was dreadful, wasn't it? So I'll be interested to see whether he does stick with, you know, what is the long term, you know, sort of aim of uh, to create a side that can play this four four two formation that he wants, or whether he'll continue uh, 
uh, to tinker and to tweak and to you know sort of change it game by game to try and get you know sort of the results. Um, I'm not suggesting you know either is the right way to go. I mean, I certainly wouldn't try and uh, you know sort of argue with anything Carlo Ancelotti is doing with his absolute you know sort of vast range of uh, tactical expertise. But it's going to be interesting. Uh, to see what he does at the start of next season, A, in terms of formation, uh, and B, in terms of like the individuals he has to fit into that. Yeah, so I think yeah. it's an important oh. point. Sorry, Phil. It's, it's an important point that Prano says there, because I, I started off the podcast talking about motivating players and getting them to play for you. And I always think when a player joins a club, apart from ages, the other thing that they're interested in, isn't it, in the modern game, is what role they're going to play yeah. in the system. And I think... The problem we had, as we've said many times on this podcast, is because you've had three or four managers sometimes playing different systems. We've got players now at the club who are not suited to the prevailing tactics that the manager wants to play. Absolutely. And that in itself can be a demotivating thing, can't it? You know, I, I want to play number 10, but you stick me on the right wing or the left wing. You know, yeah. I want to be an advanced midfielder and playing as a deep line midfielder in a 4 4 2. And I think that's part of the thing when I spoke about motivating and, and uh, getting players to play for it. That's part of Carlo's problem, isn't it? I think going into next season. It is a problem, yeah. But, you know, equally, it's something he, he, obviously he will address and he needs to address. I just wonder how quickly he's going to do it. Uh, whether, you know, because he's got this long-term contract and he's building something that he hopes will be lasting and permanent, whether he's prepared to do it bit by bit and stage by stage, which goes back to what I said earlier, why we need to be patient. And it sounds horrible saying that because, you know, God, Everton needs to be more patient than any other football fan, you know, possibly in the country. You know, for a football club that was one of the big three or four and was winning trophies regularly to have gone 25 years without any kind of trophy, that's trying most fans' patience. But to actually create something that's enduring and something that's meaningful, we might have to accept that. We might have to be patient. I mean, I totally believe in Carlo Ancelotti because of what he's achieved, you know, so as a manager in the past. And I believe he's the right man for the job, which is why I think we do have to be patient. I think, Gavin, and, and we talked about it before we recorded, and certainly um, you've, you've dropped it in and alluded to it. I think, I think for me, one of the, the most pressing issue for Carlo and, and, um, is not tactical. It's, it's almost... Um, dealing with the characters of the players because, look, the, the restart and the nine games were their own entity and, and, and there were so many different variables and, and you know, we have to take all that into consideration and, and that the players were playing under different circumstances and, and some responded better than others. But in that final three or four games, you had the Everton manager questioning the players in public, questioning their attitude, their professionalism and then their motivation. Now, it feels like to me that that's gone under the radar a little bit because of the apathy towards how the season finished. But yeah. there were three. Certainly, so obviously, you know, Wolves, everybody you know, heard that loud and clear after Wolves. But I think the fact that he questioned their motivation after Bournemouth got lost in, in a number of things. But they were three huge alarm bells ringing for me that, that, that he is not yet in a position where he can count on that with the players. And having... Rollock them at Wolves, he's still on the final day questioning motivation. No football player should have it, should, or any football player having that levelled at them should feel mortally wounded, you would think. Well, absolutely. See, so I think people miss the target. They talk about this is not Carlos' team. Well, it is Carlos' team, isn't it? So he's managing them. 
Um, and I, I, the worrying thing about that, Phyllis, goes back to what we said before, is if we've been Wolves and we've been poor, and then we've been poor at Sheffield United and Bournemouth, you would be saying, well, actually, they're just not bothered. It was to come back against Sheffield United and play really well. You know, it's the worrying thing, isn't it? How, how, how you can switch motivation on and off, <laughs> you know, within the space of a week is, is even more worrying. But I, I agree. I think what does Carlo need to do to do that? I think Preno alluded to it there, as we said, look at what the best tactical shape is for the team would be the would be the, the starting point. Playing uh, players in their proper positions would help. And um, I think that's where his experience, my management skills garnered over a you know, twenty years, as I say, comes into it. Within that you would have met many, many different type of characters. Not not necessarily all multi-millionaire players who are elite. There's going to be quite a few players you would have encountered over the years who are in that sort of category we're talking about there within the Everton squad. Um, so I think he's going to have to use that, you know, this period now between now and the start of next season to sort of reinforce that message and get everybody, you know, I hate that phrase on the same page, but I'm just going to use it uh, on the same page for the start of next season. Yeah, and the problem he's got as well is that we are playing in this really anemic, unusual environment at the at the moment. Uh, you know, with no fans being in the place, and I know every single football club has to put up with that. But you tend to find that the the, the very very top players, and I mean top in terms of attitude and in terms of motivation, are able to overcome that and are able to produce you know an absolute one hundred percent committed performance, regardless of the the lack of noise around the place. Whereas those players that maybe aren't quite, you know, at an elite level attitude-wise, struggle. You know, so they find it, it's like a, a pre-season friendly. It, it becomes more like a training exercise. Uh, and it's difficult. I mean, you know, you get players that have got absolute incredible technical ability uh, and players who've got absolutely, you know, so incredible motivation. And you need both. And, you know, as we said before, Carlo hasn't got both in his squad at the moment. Uh, you know, he needs greater quality in all areas. And as we found out to our cost at the end of last season, he needs players with different attitudes and diff- different you know, levels of commitment. So, yeah, change is required, uh, you know, so throughout the football club. And here we go again. Patience. We have to be patient to allow him to do it, you know, bit by bit. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Gav, just just on that that, that Preno mentioned, do you think that with, you know, and again, the perception is that, that, you know, in terms of key signings, the club are only looking to do two or three. Do you think that Carlo and and Marcel together can find two or three players that they'll bring in and will change or help shift the culture in that respect, help shift the mindset of, 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 of some of the players who've struggled in this period and some of the players who, yeah. whose, whose attitude, professional motivation has been questioned. And I know Carlisle didn't name individuals, but do you think that three, I'm not saying big as in fees or, 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 or certainly 
you know, star quality. We're going to talk about three yeah. big characters. Can that can that be enough to change an, a, a culture at a football club and, and drag the level of some of the underperforming players to where it needs to be a bit closer to? Um, I think it's very more, very much more difficult now than what it was when our Kendall Cross, Andy Gray, and Peter Reid into the dressing room in, in the early eighties. Um, dressing rooms are far more different beasts now compared to what they were were then. I think, I think, I'm just trying to think of an example. Just thinking about Fernandez at Man United coming in, and obviously, good quality player come in and all of a sudden United start winning games don't they there's, there's, for the professional football it's not like winning games and gaining momentum and you know that naturally will will improve morale and work rate and all that type of stuff so I don't think that character wise they'll go down to dressing room you know punch people and all this and slap them across mm. the face if you've got quality and you start winning games that will naturally help people uh, you know uh, show better attitudes just thinking you know, oh four oh five season where we well, I know you were reporting then, weren't you? Terrible end still three oh four campaign. All of a sudden, oh four oh five season. Bring in a couple of players, Marcus Benz, think uh, Kale. All of a sudden, we start winning games. Having Attitude sold the best the player, player. really. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Attitudes of the players and sort of the fighting qualities in them look completely different to what have been at the tail end of two. 2003-04, infamous game at Man City, but I know that you, you reported yeah. on. So I think I think if you get new players in race performance, start winning games, that will naturally, uh, you know, resolve some of those problems, Phil. Uh, I think, and you've seen that, with, I say, you've seen that little bit with Man United last year. I think one player can make a, a massive difference uh, on and off the pitch. I mean, Gav mentioned there, Bruno Fernandes, you know, the difference he's made, you know, so at Manchester United in terms of his quality. We've seen it at Everton, you know, so many, many times. Um, I mean, obviously, Andy Gray and Peter Reid, you were mentioned there. Andy Gray, you know, was absolutely transformative what he did at the football club. Uh, obviously, a great player still. But just in terms of his infectious attitude, uh, rubbing off on other players around him, and that little bit of experience. But you know, obviously, maybe that might not be so relevant uh, to some of the younger, you know, so people listening again. Uh, most people compared to my age now. Uh, but in more recent <laughs> year, in more recent years, uh, I'll never forget the difference that Andre Konchelskis made uh, when he came in. I mean, the number of players at that football club who were so excited by that acquisition. Uh, who were, you know, so thrilled to have a player who'd been so influential for Manchester United arriving at their football club. They wanted to perform better in front of him. They felt, you know, sort of G'd up. They felt the club could actually achieve something uh, as a result of his acquisition. So if Carlo's cute in the transfer market and he gets the right kind of player in, uh, that can have such a transformative effect. Uh, it can rub off on players around him, you know, so people suddenly start thinking, wow, yeah, you know, so we're going in the right direction. They start performing better. Or if it's somebody who has the right character and the right, you know, uh, attitude. It's funny, actually, I watched last night um, that old um, Sky soccer box thing, is it Gary Neville and Phil Neville uh, talking on the sofa. And it was really interesting stuff. Phil Neville talking about how he wasn't accepted, you know, when he first came into the football club because he was a mank. Uh, you know, so because there was a little bit of you know underlying suspicion about him, but he also felt that David Moyes made a mistake in making him captain straight away after he'd only been there four games, and he felt that a lot of the other players, you know, thought, "Hang on, he's the teacher's pet him," and they weren't quite having him 
because you know so you know the manager immediately you know so installed him and said if he'd have waited 12 months maybe maybe I'd have been assimilated a lot more quickly but Phil Neville for me is the last you know so really inspirational captain that we probably had Phil Jagielka was a great captain in a different way but you know so Phil Neville um, you know was, was a skipper who rubbed off on people around him and you know so a character like him at the football club uh, could make a big difference again you know, so just one individual can have a big difference on how a football you know, team performs. So it's so important that we get the uh, the transfer window right this summer. It doesn't have to be five or six players brought in. It just needs to be two or three players that will make a meaningful difference. Gav, uh, um, again, kind of neatly kind of threads into something. Something I've been thinking about for, for a, a week or so now, certainly since Leighton left. I think I think most, if not, or um, would it, would would we acknowledge Seamus as as a as a very fitting Everton captain? You know, I think he does. I think he holds himself well, hugely professional. You know, everything heart on the sleeve type of player. Been at the club for a long time and, and very worthy to wear the armband. Do you think that Carlo needs to or should shake up the vice captaincy and 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 the captains group? I think that have been implemented by Marco. Is it important? Do you think it's irrelevant? I, you know, what what's your feeling on that? The influence of a captain on a football club discuss, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's a, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good point. I, I think my own view about Seamus is that I think if you're a player coming to the end of your career and you're struggling for form, does that make it an ideal skipper on and off the pitch? Wouldn't you be better off just being part of the squad and just concentrating on, you know, doing your best week in, week out? Um, I, I suspect that we may move to a different captain, or I'd like to. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, as being somebody I've mentioned in the past, but I mean, I think Luca Dean strikes me as somebody you would think that would be ideal. I mean, I know sometimes language comes into this and stuff, but he's a he, he's been you know, ex- excellent to view if you have his performance across both seasons with us. He's guaranteed his place in the team. Um, at the moment, um, and he he's quite you know I wouldn't say aggressive is the right word, but he's, he's not a shrinking violet by any stretch of the imagination, is he? And he seems to be somebody who, who I think will be in the shout of being being a, a captain going forward. That's not to then a great team or whatever. I just think that if you're something for form, thirty two this year is the Seamus. Maybe not the best, uh, you know, best time to be a skipper. But I do, I do think that needs shaking up. You talk about lack of leaders and don't know what a leader is. <laughs> Difficult to define what a leader is on a football pitch and off it. But we definitely need a bit of that, don't we? Yeah, definitely. I, to, to be perfectly honest, I don't think it really matters who's got the uh, the armband, provided you've got two or three individuals in that squad or in that team who, as Gav says, are leaders. And thinking back at successful Everton teams, the last team that won the uh, silverware in 1995, Dave Watson was the absolute archetypal, you know, so captain, leader. But he was quiet. He was understated. You know, so he led by example. But there were other players in that squad that had, um, they were almost like, you know, so lieutenants, if you like, in terms of, I'm thinking of like Barry Horn type characters that maybe doesn't or didn't get the credit he deserved uh, in terms of his leadership uh, on a pitch and what he brought. And I know Joe Royal thought hugely of him. It was almost like, you know, so his, his unofficial spokesman on the pitch. What was his, that lovely phrase I used to uh, use when um, 
there was an opposition player who was, um, you know, so maybe having a bit more influence on the match than Joe would like. And he'd say to Barry, Barry, go out there and discourage him, please. <laughs> and I, I, I just loved that, you know, so you knew exactly what it meant. But Barry was a leader. And uh, so likewise, you know, the last great team that we've had, you know, so in, in the 80s was full of leaders. There were three or four of them. Kevin Ratcliffe was the skipper nominally, but, you know, so it wore the armbands. But, you know, he was uh, ably abetted by Peter Reid, by Andy Gray, uh, by, you know, so lots of other, you know, so big characters in that team. So, yeah, it needs a shake-up, certainly, because, I mean, is it Gilfie? Is he part of the uh, the, the, the leadership? Yes. So he's, he he's was, not a, yeah. He's, he's not a captain, I'm sorry. Much as I like him as a, you know, as a, a footballer, but he's not a captain. Um, you know, and Seamus, you know, he's, he's the right character, but again, maybe not quite as demonstrative enough for, for, for my liking. I don't know. Uh, I just think that you need two or three individuals that need to yeah. display leadership qualities. Look at Dean, I like that idea. Yeah, you know, so he is one that I think displays those right kind of qualities. But you need more, you know, so you need more people that, that, that basically have the right attitude that aren't shrinking violets. And we've got a few too many of them at the moment. Go on, sorry, Phil. I was just going to say, Gav, you know, look, we, we, we don't know the identity of the central midfielder that, that Everton uh, are hopefully going to sign. Obviously, we know that Carlo likes Hoiberg, but he looks like he's going to Spurs. I just wonder if there's an impact to be made in terms of if, if on the opening day, Seamus isn't playing for whatever reason, actually making a statement and Carlo gives the armband to a new signing. Does that is, is, is that symbolic for the, t- the rest of the squad? Is, is, does it mean more for the supporters? Or be, they'll be at home, of course, unfortunately. But do you think do you think it, it it just maybe sends out a bit of a right things are changing here and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to be on board and and, and you know enough of yeah. the of the of the of the comfy slippers you know I'm shaking things up and it'd be, be interesting to see who that player was I think I, I think maybe just changing the skipper from a, from a, from the standpoint I think would be a good uh, good way of Carlo sort of changing things around. Um, I think bringing somebody new in and making them skipper straight away goes back to the, the plan I was thinking about yeah. level, doesn't it, perhaps? Um, but I think um, this is where we've been left down by Fabian Delph, isn't it? He was the type of character that we thought would bring that type of leadership, even without being a skipper yeah. into, the, into the squad. And that, that just hasn't happened. Um, could still happen, mind. Could still happen. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but So you can't write that off yet. But I do think Maybe, yeah, that, that sort of top end of the hierarchy of the, the squad needs to be looked at again. And I mean, there was that, there was that, uh, rumor, wasn't it? You know, better for the Ivanovich, wasn't it? Yeah, so, apparently, not, not, nothing in it from what we're told. Yeah, yeah, you know, but you could, you could understand. I'm just wondering whether there's, there's, there's legs in Carlo bringing back somebody who's played for him before, who's got mm. those type of qualities. Who may not be sort of like next three or four years in the in the in the in the in the team, but in the short term will come in and on you know in and around the trainer pitch and on match days provide that type of leadership uh, that you you know you're talking about. May not necessarily be like 24 and then the prime years ahead of them, but somebody that Carlo can trust, somebody that trust Carlo to to bring. To, you know, to bring something to the squad that we haven't got at the moment. And in some respects, that Ivanovic thing was poo-pooed. But <laughs> in, other, in other respects, in the context of what we're talking about, Phil, 
it makes yeah. sort of sense that that type of thing, you know. Um, and uh, I, I do. I'm just wondering whether Carlo might bring back somebody's work with before, and he can trust. Uh, at one, you know, his work with over the last ten years. See, so, yeah, when, when you said that, the actual name that just jumped into my head straight away is exactly what Walter Smith did with Richard Goff, who was um, thirty-eight yeah. or thirty-seven when uh, Walter brought him to the club, and uh, he'd been in America. He had a spell at Forest, I think. He was, you know, he was basically uh, a shadow of the player he had been uh, in his prime at Glasgow Rangers when Walter had him and at Tottenham Hotspur. But wow, what a difference he made to that football club in a short period of time. He was a leader. He was a great player still. I'd have loved to have seen him in his prime because, you know, so at 37, he was something special. So, yeah, Ivanovic, to me, uh, a shame we're going to poo-poo it now, Phil, but <laughs> it sounded like somebody that could have uh, you know, been of that ilk, of that mould. No, it's yeah, interesting. It's just... uh, I was just going to say, it is interesting. And, and something I wrote about, actually, funnily enough, last weekend was if you look at the age of the squad now, and obviously the, the football club have a very clear strategy about investing money in players aged 20 to 25, 26, because everything that goes with that development, sell-on fees, etc. And that's perfect. And that's, you know, that's totally the right method about reducing the age of the squad. But if you take away Baines now, you take away Martin Stecklenberg, who was, from what I understand, was considered a very good influence on the goalkeepers. Seamus is the oldest player in the squad. And below him, you've got, as you mentioned, Delph. 30, who obviously has had a difficult first season. Theo Walcott, 31, but, you know, is not really seen as... He's yeah. not a shouter and a screamer, but again, very professional and well-respected. And then you've got Sigurdsson. And so you're looking at that leadership in inverted commas on an age bracket and not necessarily being ho- yeah. totally sort of inspired by it. So um, I think you make an interesting point about bringing... Ancelotti bringing back an old lieutenant. The, pro- the problem is, of course, mm-hmm. all of Carlo Ancelotti's players are on about three hundred and fifty grand a week, aren't they? Because they've yeah, all been so but, good. But but that's the point, though, Phil. I, that the, I'm not saying go out and buy Ivanovic, but that, it's that type of signing. Somebody who's may, he may not even be playing for Bayern Munich or PSG or or you know whatever Real Madrid. It could be somebody who's moved on elsewhere and playing in. I don't know, like. Defence League or something, or yes. you know, an Eastern Bloc, but somebody that's worked with Carlo that he's had a close relationship to, who you know, Carlo thinks he could do a job for me, and even if it's just for 12 months. And um, I, I, I do think that, that that's something that we need to consider. May not be like, I said, like a Kinshelska type sign, and I know was talking about, but just somebody, somebody could bring a bit of leadership. Somebody's won something, he can say, here's my medals, by the way, you know, that, that all helps. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, th- I just think that that is maybe a sign of that he will make. But well, I, I would like to think he would make as well, because we desperately need, desperately need that type of uh, character around the club. I mean, look, we're trying to sort of second guess, of course, a little bit, but, you know, Carlo was fully aware of the picture you know, um, of what the club's strategy is, et cetera, et cetera. But could you foresee a situation, because you know you've dealt with managers, far more managers than I have in, in, your, in your career, but all managers just want more, don't they? And look, they understand that there's, there's, there's strategies and stuff, but can you foresee a situation where Carlo actually is in these meetings over Zoom or whatever with the board and going, well, you know, as, as Gab's alluding to here, if we go and get, we can go and get Ivanovic, he'll come, I can get him, you know, just give me that money. I think it can work and put, try to push the, the the sort of the kind of the the uh, the realms of what Everton are looking at 
in terms of strategy and just trying to push the envelope a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it, it's it's quite. I'd love to be a fly on the wall at those meetings. Oh, uh, really, yeah. you know, so Carlo and Marcel, uh, because you know, you talk about the club's long term strategy being to reduce, you know, the the age of the squad and to have players that have sell on value, which I totally get and totally understand. Uh, but sometimes you do have to look outside that strategy and just break it a little bit. It doesn't need to be absolutely rigid. Uh, you know, so if you can bring in one individual, you know, that will make such a significant difference. And um, I'm thinking David Moyes' last season as Everton manager, uh, when, again, he knocked on the door, he was like pressing his head against that glass ceiling. And he said in the January, I think he pleaded with the board, if you can get me, I think it's like 12 million quid he wanted, uh, to buy a striker. You know, so if we can add a striker in January, I will effectively guarantee Champions League football. Now, no manager can ever do that, but I think, you know, he was prepared uh, you know, sort of put his reputation on the line because he felt that would do it. Uh, and obviously the board couldn't find that money. And as a result, you know, he was going to go to Manchester United anyway. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the fact that, you know, he'd been knocked back again made him think that, well, OK, you know, so I may as well, you know, sort of go somewhere else. I think what knocks that entire argument on the head is that I think the player that he was, you know, keen to bring in for that money was Lachina Traore. And on the, uh, on the brief evidence that we saw of him when he eventually came to the football club on loan, <laughs> Uh, he probably wasn't going to make the difference in players into Champions League qualification. Uh, but yeah, sometimes, you know, you do have to make decisions that, that break the club philosophy and break the club structure, uh, you know, short-term gain, you know, for, for long-term, you know, sort of success. Um, and I don't think that Everson's philosophy is so rigidly set in stone that they are going to say to Carlo, no, you can't have him because, you know, he's 28 years of age and won't have sufficient sell-on value. I mean, Farhad Mashiri has proved that many times already. If he's excited by a player and by a signing, he'll find the money for him and he'll, he'll you know, sort of splash it out regardless. But, well, well, Delph is obviously the, the, the good example, isn't he, of yeah. last season, of, of that breaking that mould, isn't it? He is, yeah. I mean, We've been quite unfortunate with Fabian Delph because all the arguments that we've been making about, you know, sort of the squad and the attitude and that kind of thing, you could argue that he is that type of player that could make that difference, that, you know, so could be the leader on the pitch, that could be the voice in the dressing room. He's got the quality, you know, and he's certainly got the uh, the medals that, you know, so we're talking about, Gavin talked about earlier, shows you medals, you know, so he's been there and done it, you know, so during his spell at Manchester City and was very, very highly thought of there. But... His record's never been great as far as injuries go throughout his career, uh, but it seems to be even been worse since he's come to Everton. So we've been unfortunate in that respect and that we maybe haven't seen him uh, and he's not really had that opportunity to make the difference that maybe he might have made. Maybe after, you know, so a month or so, you know, so pre-season, he can finally overcome it and we can get a little bit more of a run out of him. I don't know. Uh, it's a big if. Maybe we're just being unfortunate in that respect, though, and maybe one of the players that could make a difference is actually there and we just haven't seen him enough. Okay, chaps. Well, we said we'd uh, we'd keep it lean and mean, but that was a really interesting discussion about the job facing Carlo and and, and the areas that really uh, be pressing concern as they uh, reconvene at Finch Farm at the end of uh, next week for pre-season training. Um, Gav Preno, thank you very much for your company, Pleasure. and thank you, thank you for listening. This has been the Royal Blue Podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.